Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this episode, Bishop talks about St. Scholastica, whose feast day we celebrate today. Then he takes a deep dive into this Sunday's Gospel reading, which tells the story of a leper who begs Jesus to help him and the compassionate response he receives. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. Thank you again for taking some time for us, Bishop. It's always good to see you. You're welcome, Kyle. And uh, Kyle, before I forget, I was listening to Redeemer Radio in the car the other day, and I heard your show with your son, Sebastian. I had not, I didn't realize you had a show with, with Sebastian, and I was so impressed by him and his answers to your questions. Uh, about Adam and Eve was the theme, and I I was just like, wow. How old is Sebastian? Sebastian's 10. We started, it's called Catholicism with my kid, and we started that in August, and I thought it was just going to be me and Sebastian, because he, he kind of enjoys being on a microphone. Well, then Frank wanted to do it. He's nine, and so uh-huh. we kind of go back and forth between Frank and Sebastian. They take turns. And then Xavier, who's five, he wanted to do it. So, uh, oh no, he's six now. They were six. So he's been on a couple times, but. Well, you know what? I have Sebastian now on my list of potential future seminarians, just so you know. Excellent. Good. Good. We'll, we'll pray that uh, he would respond to God's call, whatever that would be. <laughs> That's right. Great. Well, do you have an opening prayer for us today? Yeah. Why don't we uh, pray that, that prayer to St. Joseph that Pope Francis gave us? You know, for this year of St. Joseph, I've been praying it, and I really like it. So let's begin with that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail, guardian of the Redeemer, spouse of the Blessed Virgin Mary. To you, God entrusted his only Son. In you, Mary placed her trust. With you, Christ became man. Blessed Joseph, to us too, Show yourself a father and guide us in the path of life. Obtain for us grace, mercy, and courage, and defend us from every evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, well, today is the Feast of St. Scholastica, which uh, I don't know a whole lot about her. I know that she's, uh, is it a twin sister of St. Benedict? The earliest evidence we have is that she's a sister of St. Benedict. And then around the ninth century, there was a tradition that she was a twin sister. But So okay. there's some debate among scholars whether she was a sister or a twin sister, but, but definitely a sister because we uh-huh. have very early, early uh, testimony to that. And the name, I, every time I hear St. Scholastica, I just think of scholastic, like this mm-hmm. uh, academic kind of implications. Is there any relation to the term? Do you know? I don't know how her parents gave her that name. I don't know okay. if it was her. It'd be interesting whether it was her baptismal name or did oh, she take right. that name later? I, I don't know. But um, I know her parents were wealthy. Of course, you know, Benedict's parents, they're from Umbria, a town called Norcia, which I visited when I was a student in Italy. And she was born around 480 A.D. And um, most of what we know about her is from a writing by St. Gregory the Great, Pope Hmm. Gregory the Great. He wrote uh, 
In his book called The Dialogues, he writes about Benedict's sister, Scholastica, but he doesn't say she was a twin sister. And I don't think I've ever met a person named Scholastica, (laughs) baptismal name. However, I had a seventh grade teacher who was Sister Anne Scholastica. Okay. And and she was a sister of St. Joseph. And she was a, a young sister at the time. And and I have just such positive memories of her. Like she was just so joyful in her faith. And and it really was in seventh grade when I was confirmed that I really thought of, you know, first the idea of the priesthood came to my mind or a religious brother. And it was I think it was because of Sister Scholastica. So anyhow, I just thought of her as you as we talk about Saint Scholastica. And that would have been a name that she took as a, a religious name, not her birth name? Right. She took okay. it as a religious name. Yeah. Very good. So her feast day is today, February 10th. You know, she's considered the foundress of the Benedictine nuns. I had a, a distant cousin who was the Reverend Mother, the superior of the Benedictine Sisters of Elizabeth, New Jersey. So when I was a kid, you know, we would visit her and a wonderful nun. And um, anyhow, so that's my only connection really with Benedictine nuns. I think a lot of people, you know, when they think of Benedictines, they think of Benedictine monks. But it's important to realize they're also Benedictine sisters. Sure. St. Scholastica really was the foundress. Hmm. And can you share a little bit about the Benedictine order? Like, what are they known for? Well, as far as the Benedictine nuns, I think in in many ways they they were similar to the monks, and at least in the early period, we know that Saint Scholastica, for example, who's normally depicted as an abbess, that she lived in a, a hermitage close to Monte Cassino, where her brother Benedict was the abbot and founder. So she lived in this convent and she had some other women who also lived with her, were consecrated women, religious, and they were, you know, women who devoted their lives to prayer. Now, the Benedictine sisters, some are still cloistered like that, but others are active, like the sisters sisters of St. Benedict of Elizabeth, New Jersey. They also were teachers and worked in hospitals, health, Catholic health care, et cetera. But what we know about St. Scholastica is really mostly from the, the writing of, of St. Gregory the Great. I mean, one thing he says is that she was dedicated to God from a young age. <laughs> um, so she and her brother Benedict, you know, would have been brought up together. They brought up in the faith. You know, she was dedicated to God from a young age. We don't know exactly what that means. And then when St. Benedict left home to go to Rome to as a to pursue his studies, we're not really sure what happened to Scholastica at that point. She probably just remained in her parents' house. That's what normally would happen. A, a woman would always stay home with her parents until she was married or uh-huh. until she entered a convent. Now, it seems like Somewhere along the line, though, Scholastica, you know, started this hermitage and near Monte Cassino, 
where her brother had built the famous monastery on the top of the mountain, and she was living at the at the base of the mountain. As a matter of fact, I visited there, and I visited, you know. But there's a very famous story, and this is recounted in the dialogues of Pope Gregory the Great. And you may have heard this. It's in the breviary on February 10th. So every year I read it when I pray the Office of Readings on fe- February 10th. And it basically is, it tells us, St. Gregory the Great tells us that once a year, Scholastica would visit her brother Benedict. And they would meet at a place near the abbey. And they'd just spend the, the day together in prayer and spiritual conversation, you know, hmm. talking about their spiritual life, talking about the scriptures, whatever. And Gregory recounts that on one of these annual days, they had they had met and had that day together, and then they had supper. And after supper, they continued, but then Benedict said he had to leave. It was getting late. And Scholastica said, oh, please don't leave. You know, she asked him to stay for the whole evening so they could continue their spiritual discussions. And Benedict said no, because that would be breaking his own rule. You know, okay. they couldn't be be overnight somewhere outside the outside the monastery. He said, No, I gotta return to the monastery, I gotta return to my cell. And Saint Scholastica at that point, uh, maybe she knew that her death was near. That's but anyhow, she she started to pray. She she joined her hands and started to pray. And after a moment, a violent storm broke out outside where they were staying. And um, Benedict said to her, his sister, he said, what have you done? (laughs) And she said, I asked you to stay and you wouldn't listen. So I asked God for you to stay. And he did listen. (laughs) So so then um, she said, but if you want. She said, "If go off, go ahead, go back if you can. <laughs> leave me, return to your monastery." Well, he couldn't leave. This was a violent storm. Yeah. So they ended up spending the night in discussion and spiritual conversation and prayer. So it's just a great story. And then three days later, according to Pope Gregory the Great, Benedict saw his sister's soul leaving the earth hmm. and ascending to heaven in the form of a white dove. And sometimes you'll see in Christian iconography, St. Scholastica with a dove. In any event, Benedict brought her body to the monastery on top of Monte Cassino, and uh, he prepared a tomb. Actually, it was a tomb that he had prepared for himself, so it was a tomb that would contain his body and his sister Scholastica's body. And I remember praying at that tomb. It's still there. You can pray at the tomb of Saints Benedict and Scholastica at Monte Cassino. And when the Allies bombed the monastery during World War II, the only thing that was not destroyed or un- left or was untouched was the tomb of Benedict and Scholastica. It wasn't wow. hurt by the bombings. Huh. Yeah. That's amazing. So anyhow, I think it's good to remember her. And and you've seen those? Yes, yes. Great. Yeah, I've been to Monte Cassino. I was um it's a few hours from Rome and I actually the first time I went there, I I actually climbed up Monte Cassino, which was not an easy 
or a short walk, but uh, but it's a rebuilt monastery because, as I said, it was um, it was destroyed during the war. So Monte Casino is not a casino where you would gamble. Is this is this the name of a no. town? Is it the name of a building? Yeah, Monte Casino is the name of the mountain. Mountain, uh, okay. Mount Casino, but I think if I recall, uh-huh. there's a town of Casino, you know, nearby. At the bottom of the hill, a uh, bottom of the mountain, and uh, so the town of Casino, and then they call the mountain Monte Casino. Okay, great. All right. Well, we have one week left to prepare for Lent. So if people haven't started thinking about what they're going to do for Lent, maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. But thought maybe as a preparation, we could take a look at Sunday's Gospel, which I don't know that it's directly picked out to be like the Sunday before Lent. It's a Sunday in ordinary time, so it's not necessarily a, a preparatory gospel, but maybe maybe you can be creative and, and figure out how this can help us pr- to think about Lent or prepare for Lent. Yeah, I can make a I can make an easy connection. Yeah, I can make it. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's it's uh, Sunday in ordinary time, so it's not. Uh, it could sometimes not be not the Sunday before Lent because mm-hmm. Sunday before Ash Wednesday because it changes. Uh, according to the date of Easter. So it's not directly chosen for that reason, but I think it could be easily applied. I'll read the gospel. It's one that everybody's heard. It's in the first chapter of the gospel of Mark. So it's still very early on in Jesus's public ministry. It's the story of Jesus healing a leper. We know in this first chapter of St. Mark, we already heard about Jesus's first miracle that was public, according to Mark, was the the uh, casting out of a demon, but now we have this cleansing of a, of a leper. So I'll read it. A leper came to Jesus and kneeling down, begged him and said, if you wish, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him and said to him, I do will it be made clean. The leprosy left him immediately and he was made clean. Then warning him sternly, he dismissed him at once. He said to him, see that you tell no one anything, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses prescribed. That will be proof for them. The man went away and began to publicize the whole matter. He spread the report abroad so that it was impossible for Jesus to enter a town openly. He remained outside in deserted places, and people kept coming to him from everywhere. So that's the gospel for this Sunday. So we can reflect a little bit about it. You know, leprosy was a dreaded disease. And I think Mm -hmm. um, a little bit of background, and I think probably a lot of listeners already have heard this from preachers hearing the story of Jesus uh, healing lepers, but... Both in the Old and the New Testament, leprosy, when they use the word leprosy, it's it could be not necessarily what we call leprosy today, which is Hansen's disease. It could have been, uh, but there were various skin conditions, infections at mm-hmm. that time, you know, so Hansen's disease was one of them. And some of these disfiguring skin conditions would go away, uh, but some didn't, and some really resulted in, you know, deformities and 
abnormal appearance and it could be very painful. And mm-hmm. but in any event, what happened was in the Jewish among the Jews, a person who had leprosy was considered unclean, not just because of this physically, but also ritually unclean. In other words, purity was associated with normality, you know. It, mm. So in the Old Testament, there were regulations that said that priests were determined whether a skin condition was leprosy or not. So a person had to go to one of the pri- to the priest, and if it was said that, yeah, this was leprosy, then the person was excluded from the community. You can read about this in the book of Leviticus in chapter 13, uh, verses 45 and 46. We read there in Leviticus, the one who bears the sore of leprosy shall keep his garments rent and his head bare and shall muffle his beard. He shall cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as the sore is on him, he shall declare himself unclean, since he is in fact unclean. He shall dwell apart, making his abode outside the camp. You know, that was, I mean, very awful when you think about it. And person would have to go to the priest. If they determined it was leprosy, person was excluded from the community. Also, if it went away, the person still had to go back to the priest. So the priest would then make a decision and make a judgment whether the disease had gone away. And then the person would still have to go through some purification rituals before rejoining these com- the community. Obviously, this was a way to keep the, the disease from spreading because it would be contagious. But the idea of being ostracized from the community and that a person was ritually unclean, you know, so they couldn't even participate in the worship of the community. So here we have this leper in the gospel coming to Jesus. He's okay. So he's already disobeying the law because they were prohibited from, from approaching people. And this leper came to Jesus and, uh, Obviously, he must have heard that Jesus healed the sick. That's why he went to him, and he needed to be healed. So he he comes and he knelt down, and it says he begged Jesus. He said, if you wish, you can make me clean. So he had this trust, this faith, this confidence in our Lord's ability to heal him. So he implores Jesus. He begs him to, to make him clean because... He believed Jesus could, that he was able mm-hmm. to. And I love this part where it says that then Jesus was moved with pity for the man. Now, we can just gloss over that, but if, if you read the Greek, there's a Greek verb here, which is probably, is it's stronger than just moved with pity. It It's like it's, it's a word that refers to one's guts. In other words, this was a, Jesus was moved to the very, you know, very, very deeply. It was like a gut reaction of compassion, of pity for the man. Uh, So this was a very strong emotion that Jesus had in the face of this guy who was suffering 
from this dreaded disease. Jesus was moved with pity, deeply moved, okay, like in, in his very inner self. And what does our Lord do? He stretches out his hand and he touched him. Now that, can you imagine the disciples and others who saw that? You don't touch lepers. Um, right. You know, because if you do, if they did, then they would also be considered unclean and be ostracized. So Jesus disregarded that because he was moved with such profound compassion <laughs> that he touched him. He touched an untouchable, you know? So our Lord will do that. He'll break through these barriers, even if it violates the uh, Levitical law. And he stretched out his hand, he touched him, and he said uh, to the leper, I do will it, be made clean. So Jesus restored him to physical health. It says the leprosy left him immediately, okay? So he's restored to physical health, but also he was cleansed of that ritual impurity. Okay, so leprosy left the man kind of like the demon in his previous miracle had come out of the man in the synagogue. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's really the reverse. Jesus wasn't made unclean by touching the leper. The leper was made clean by Jesus's touch. Right. At that point, our Lord warns him sternly, dismissed him at once. He's says to him, see that you tell no one anything, but go show yourself to the priest, offer for your cleansing what Moses prescribed, that will be proof for them. Uh, so Jesus healed the man, but the man still had to follow these procedures that were specified in the law of Moses in order to be ritually purified. So Jesus is telling him, do what the law requires, you know, go to the mm -hmm. priest, do the purification. And that would restore him to society. And then he could have normal contact with people. But our Lord told him not to tell anyone. You know, there's other passages too where Jesus performs miracles and heals people. He tells them to keep quiet about it. Obviously, this would, if, if this would spread, you know, it could lead to misunderstanding. They just see Jesus as a miracle, as a wonder worker. But the man couldn't keep it to himself. He went, <laughs> he spread the word. He publicized it. He told other people about the, the healing. I mean, I can be sympathetic towards him. You know, imagine his uh, joy and and that that he. Uh... By the way, in Mark's gospel, we talk about the messianic secret. I don't know if you uh -huh. ever heard of that in biblical yeah. theology. So, the whole idea was, and this is kind of clear in Mark's gospel, especially that. Um, the fact of Jesus being the Messiah, he didn't want that spread because, first of all, they had an idea of a Messiah that would be a political savior. But because this man spread the word, publicized this, it says that it was impossible for Jesus to then enter a town openly. So he had to stay outside towns and kind of stay away so that he wouldn't get mobbed. People did find him. They kept coming to him, but... Uh, before, you know, people from Capernaum were looking for him because that's where 
the other miracle had taken place. Well, now it says people from everywhere kept coming to him. So, so the word of who of what Jesus was doing kind of got out, and crowds started coming to him. Um, so, anyhow, I think it's. Uh, I love this story, and I think it's good for. Uh, you asked about connection to Lent. I, I would probably connect it of of how we're all unclean by hmm. our sins, and Jesus heals us. That's a prominent theme of uh, of Lent is uh, our Lord's mercy towards us, his compassion for sinners, and how he so deeply desires to make us clean. And that's why he gave us the sacrament of penance, reconciliation. Well, and one thing I like about this story too, besides what you mentioned, is that he comes and says, if you wish you can make me clean. He says, as, I know that you can make me clean, but if that's your will, then that'd be great. You know, it's not, yeah. this is my demand of you, but you know, if it be your will, and he says, yeah. I do will it, be made yeah. clean. So it's yeah. this humility that he, he comes to Jesus with. Yeah, yeah. Each of us, when we read a gospel, like something can move us differently according to, you know, what strikes us or what's, you know, in our prayer. But that idea of how Jesus was moved with pity is just, you know, and that's just such a weak translation, although we don't really have a a word in, in English like like in Greek, but but it, it really gets this idea of one's guts in his innards, hmm. he was moved, you know? Yeah. And I, I think of how much Jesus has that that uh, in amazing compassion towards suffering, people who are suffering. Mm-hmm. So when we're suffering, to think of how Jesus has such deep compassion for us and that he's with us, obviously it's because of that compassion that he himself underwent uh, his terrible passion and death on the cross. All right, well, again, that's this Sunday's gospel. You can check it out, Mark chapter one. It's verses 40 through 45. Uh, check that out, read ahead, get, uh, get prepped for this Sunday's gospel. And if you have any questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to redeemerradio.com slash askbishop or text the Holy Cross College text line, which is 260-436-9598. And we'll talk more about Lent and how this Ash Wednesday may be different than in the past. Coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Notre Dame Federal Credit Union has a special mission to serve the Catholic Church in America. In 2020 alone, we've served over 800 parishes, schools, and nonprofits in more than 25 dioceses nationwide. We are a member-owned, not-for-profit cooperative, working hard to create a national Catholic financial alternative to the for-profit banks. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and we've been talking about Lent, which starts one week from today, and things are going to be a little bit different as kind of we're getting used to saying these days is things are going to be different than last year, and Ash Wednesday is going to be a little bit different. 
one with the distribution of ashes. Can you explain what people can expect for the distribution of ashes? Yes. Uh, the Vatican Congregation for Divine Worship issued a note on how to distribute ashes during the pandemic. And rather than making a cross on people's forehead, which is with the ashes, which is what we're accustomed to, it says that ashes should be sprinkled on the top of people's heads. So, yeah, we're not used to that. But I'll have to tell you, my seven years in Rome, that's how I always received ashes. In Italy, they don't huh. put them on the forehead. They sprinkle them on the top of your head. And I think that that's the same in Spain and I think in other countries. But in the United States, we've been used to the ashes being imposed on our forehead. So we'll kind of get to experience uh, how it's done in many other countries, which is the sprinkling of the ashes on the top of the head. Can, can you explain why the difference from country to country? Why, why would we do them on the forehead if they do it differently in, in Europe? I don't know the history of how that developed differently. Uh, I mean, when you look at the, you know, being clothed in sackcloth and ashes in the Old Testament, you know, where we get this, I think it was, you know, ashes were sprinkled. Okay. I, I kind of like the imposition of ashes on the forehead with the sign of the cross. I think it's more visible. But they're both different ways of imposing ashes, and both are are permissible. So, okay. yeah. But how it actually developed differently in different countries, I, I don't know. Maybe some some liturgists may have studied that, but I, I don't know. Yeah. I wonder if you'll see more women wearing veils on Ash Wednesday to uh, to keep the ash out of their hair. <laughs> I don't know. People will. It'll be interesting how how people react to it. But but as I said, it, that's how I used. To, I mean, I remember you know the Pope. You know, on Ash Wednesday, the popes would always have mass at a Dominican church called Santa Sabina. Then there'd be a there was a procession to the church from the Benedictine Abbey nearby, which is San Anselmo. And I remember the first time I saw the Pope receiving ashes sprinkled on his forehead, and then I saw him sprinkling ashes on, I mean, on, on the top of the head. And then I saw the Pope doing the same thing, sprinkling the ashes on top of people's heads. I thought, what are they doing? <laughs> uh, and then I realized that was their custom. Well, in addition to how the ashes are distributed, the blessing will be a little bit different this year. Is that correct? I, I think it's the same prayer. I don't think there's anything uh, different. The, It'll be communal uh, instead of individual? Well, the blessing of the ashes is always done communally, and then then the priest takes the ashes to, to distribute. So the blessing remains the same. When the priest will, or deacon will, um, sprinkle the ashes, I think they still say, you know, the same words, which are repent and believe in the gospel. Or you okay. can say, remember you are dust, and to dust you shall return. I don't think that's changed. I'd have to look at the decree from the Vatican, but I think it's the same. It's just the, the way of putting on the ashes is different. Okay. Uh, but while we're talking about Lent, I thought, any tips or suggestions on, on what we should be doing in the next week to prepare for Lent? Celebrate Mardi Gras. Yeah. Does that help? So that, that, that is the question. Does Mardi Gras actually help us prepare for Lent or has it become a, uh, maybe a distraction from yeah. no, preparing I mean, for it Lent? Can be, yeah, it can be excessive. I mean, I think it is kind of good or it's fun 
you know, especially on on uh, Mardi Gras itself, Fat Tuesday, the day before Lent. Although in some areas, Mardi Gras or Carnival is celebrated for many, many weeks before Lent right. begins. But <laughs> but uh, the word Mardi Gras is French. It means Fat Tuesday. But I think it is kind of a, a nice thing that before you enter the Lenten fast, you can have some rich, you know, fatty foods, you know, donuts yeah. and all that. But no, you're right. I mean, I think it's, I think Mardi Gras is fine. It's okay. just that in some places it's become excessive and, mm-hmm. you know, gluttony and drunkenness and all that. That's obviously not good. And, and some, uh, but I remember Carnivale in, in different places, like in Italy that were fun. You know, there was nothing, nothing wrong with it. Um, you know, in Germany, I guess they call it Fasnacht, the the night before the fast. Uh, uh-huh. So I think mostly, you know, a lot of this is in Catholic Catholic countries, and uh, it's kind of nice to to do that before entering the period of fast. But just don't go overboard. Sure, uh, you know, I think that's the danger. I think Mardi Gras began. It didn't really begin in in the United States in New Orleans. We, I mean, New Orleans is famous for Mardi Gras, but it actually began in Mobile, Alabama. Huh. There's French settlers in Mobile, uh, and they still have celebrations in Mobile. But we always hear about the celebrations in in New Orleans, and of course, there's some problems there with you know, <laughs> with some Im- immorality. So that's sure. that's not good, and or people selling Mar- celebrating Mardi Gras and then ignoring Lent. I mean, mm-hmm. no, I mean it's uh, no. Honestly, I think it's good. Your question the week before Lent to really think about what penance one intends to do during Lent, uh, to plan ahead, of course, in the traditional three three ways, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. I think it's good to reflect on that before Ash Wednesday so uh, so that you're really thinking, okay, how how is the Lord calling me to do penance this Lent? What would be, what areas of, of sacrifice would be most beneficial in my spiritual life? So I would invite people to uh, to think in this coming these coming days about uh, how they intend to uh, observe Lent. Definitely, according I, I would say according to those three categories, prayer. You know, we always think of daily mass, liturgy of the hours, stations of the cross, meditation with scripture, the Holy Rosary, many different things. One, I mean, we have such a wealth of spiritual practices that. Um, of course, fasting. I, you know, I, you know, with all the challenges we face, uh, Jesus recommended not just prayer, but prayer and fasting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think fasting needs. We need a little bit more emphasis on on fasting as part of of our penitential practices, and, and a real real fasting, not just like. Okay, you can give up chocolate or something like that, but but something that's more more of a sacrifice, maybe some particular giving up some particular favorite food, but but also you know abstaining, you know certainly observing the the absti- the rules of abstinence from meat on Ash Wednesday and all the Fridays of Lent. We have two required days of fasting in the year: Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. One can choose to do a f- fasting beyond Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. Mm-hmm. Maybe fast and only have one meal 
one full meal every Friday. You know, I mean, we don't just have to do the minimum. Right, right. And and then, of course, almsgiving. I mean, there's so many needy people, you know, and one can combine the fasting and the money one would save from buying food to or, or alcohol or whatever it might be that one gives up and, and, and have maybe a particular charity or charities. You know, it could be Catholic Relief Services or our own diocesan Catholic charities or St. Vincent de Paul Society or whatever. There's mm -hmm. a great number of Catholic uh, charitable groups. Or you might even know personally someone who, who needs a helping hand mm -hmm. uh, that you could help them uh, financially. All right. And Bishop, we haven't really had a chance to talk about this too much, but uh, Redeemer Radio is launching a podcast network and really collaborating with a lot of other podcasters out there. And we're going to be doing a campaign for Lent, which is 40 days of podcasts. So each day we'll give you a different podcast to listen to, one, to get a sample of different shows, but also for something you, for you to grow in your faith while you're you know driving to work or doing the dishes or whatever you're doing. You can listen to this in the background and get a good sample of different shows as well as you know hopefully be inspired, be challenged, be given something to think about so that you can grow in your faith during Lent in addition to your prayer and fasting and almsgiving. So if people want to check that out, they can go to spokestreet.com and get signed up and you can get it over email or you can subscribe to the the 40 podcasts and, and be come to your podcasting app, uh, whatever works best for you. Also, we'll have it on social media as well. So check it out at spokestreet.com. What is Spoke Street, Kyle? So, yeah, well, thank you for asking. So Spoke Street is uh, Redeemer Radio. We did a big brainstorming on on where we're being called to in the future and, and like a five-year plan, 10-year plan, and really did some discernment and wanted to launch into the digital space more and, and really double down with the podcasting. And Redeemer Radio will continue to exist as an FM station and and with towers in Fort Wayne and South Bend, so Northeast Indiana. Uh, but in addition to that, the content creation is will be a, a more widely distributed. So not just nationally, but I would say internationally. And so working with podcasters from all over the country and potentially outside of the country as well on just content that's welcoming, that's inviting, that's faithful to Catholic Church teaching, that's not divisive. And so Spoke Street Media is that kind of arm of, of our ministry. And so uh, I was just wondering where that name came from. Well, it, it's, it's multifaceted. So spoke as in like the spoke of a wheel and how we want to kind of bring people together and reach out to different uh, organizations okay. and, and be in different places and, and be this connector between content creators and listeners. Uh, but also we are specializing in the spoken word. So it's uh, okay. that we, we are sharing audio that was spoken. Uh, obviously God spoke into the world existence itself. Uh, but then also the street part spoke street is really the street is a, a vehicle, right? It's a, it's a path to reach out to people and that we're called, I mean, Pope Francis says this so many times to, to go out of the church and into the streets and to, to meet people where they are. And uh, right now, a lot of people are listening to podcasts. And so we want to, you know, walk out of our, our churches and, and reach out to them into their phones and earbuds and, and tablets and smart speakers 
and be able to share these truths with them wherever they are. So mm-hmm. yeah, it, was, it was a it was a long brainstorming on on names, and a lot of great names are already taken. But Spokestreet.com was available, and uh, it, I, I think it, it shares a little bit of our mission in the name. Good. Well, good luck with that. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I think we have time for one question. Last week, we were talking about Catholic schools, and someone was asking about this executive order that came out a little while ago. Um, President Biden, he announced that they're going to be allowing transgender female uh, biological males to compete in women's sports teams. I uh, wondered if you had any thoughts or comments on on that and how that might affect our Catholic schools. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how wide-ranging it is. It's a little... I mean, we're worried about it because the executive order seems to extend the existing federal non-discrimination protections to LGBTQ people. And, you know, it kind of goes back to the Supreme Court decision. I don't know if you remember, Bostock versus Clayton County back in June. And at issue in that decision was Title VII of the Civil Rights Act that prevents employment discrimination based on race, religion, national origin, and sex. Mm-hmm. And the court determined in a 6-3 decision that the word sex also applied to sexual orientation as well as gender identity. Mm-hmm. So it said then that LGBTQ people are protected from job discrimination by Title Seven. So therefore, a person an employer couldn't fire an employee for being homosexual or transgender. Now, of course, we don't want uh, you know people to be fired in those situations. However, at the same time, what about situations of, of um, does this mean that let's say in our schools, we would have to hire people who, let's say, were in a same-sex marriage or we couldn't terminate a teacher who entered a same-sex marriage or went through transgender surgery, sex reassignment surgery. So this is kind of complicated, and, and we'd really oppose the idea of, really, it was a redefinition of what sex means. I mean, mm-hmm. certainly when in 1964, when Title VII of the Civil Rights Act was was uh, enacted, I mean, they sex was you know being male or female now it's expanded to include sexual orientation as well as gender identity so so this has a lot of implications um and so we're worried about it well the executive order from president biden went even further the supreme court decision didn't address the issues of bathrooms or locker rooms or things like that it didn't address the religious liberty issues involved uh, so President Biden's order went a step further, I think, than the Supreme Court decision that it, it seems that we'll have some conflicts here. Does this take away our ability for our schools and our churches and our charities and our hospitals? Does that mean that we can't discriminate in the sense of, uh, I mean, we wouldn't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. But we would mm-hmm. discriminate on the basis of of uh, the behavior. Mm-hmm. So you know, if Catholics are divorced and remarried and 
outside the church, they cannot be Catholic school teachers. Same if someone enters into a same-sex marriage, they can't be teachers in our schools. So is that discrimination? Yes, but it's not unjust discrimination because of our belief in what marriage is and our belief that, and when it comes to gender identity, our belief that God created us male or female. So yeah, we want every person should be treated with respect and dignity, but at the same time, we have certain truths that, um, you know, what would happen if, if we can't live those truths and employ people who embrace the truths that we hold uh, so deeply? Um, so it doesn't seem, I mean, from the, the Biden executive order, for example, it seems that it would give access to in locker rooms and restrooms and sports a boy could say, identify as a girl or a girl as a boy, and they could use whatever. So we'll have to see how this plays itself out. We'll have to see whether the religious liberty protections that we have would protect us from having to, to cooperate with, with these things. Okay. Well, just a reminder, if you have questions, you can send a text to the Holy Cross College text line, which is 260-436-9598. And before we go, could we get your Episcopal blessing? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.